0: Oh, hello, John. Brian, how's it going? Uh, it's going good. Did you Did you notice that old Civil War cemetery we just passed? I did notice it, yeah.
1: It looked like some of the gravestones were overturned. Yeah, it's too bad that people who maintain the trail don't take better care of it. Well, you know, we're in kind of a remote area.
0: That's true. But still, the the dead should not be disturbed, is what I always say. I had some movie reviews that I, I pulled out while we were walking by that unkempt civil war graveyard and uh i thought i'd read them to you let's hear them all right the first one's short second one is longer third one's longest as is my wont. here comes number one for pure 80s punk rock walking dead brain-eating mayhem this is the film to watch because hmm. gives, it gives quite a lot away it does 80s punk rock brain-eating walking dead uh, very specific but i'll pretend mm. like i don't know what it is all right uh, here's view number two the scares are always accompanied by silliness, though the special makeup effects are often outstanding, contributing to a considerable yuck factor.
1: Hmm.
0: You have a considerable yuck factor every morning, don't you, John? All right, here's the, here's the third review, a little longer. Not many movies have the nerve to name their sources right there in the dialogue, so you can make your own comparisons. This movie makes no secret of its inspiration. The movie opens with a teenager going to work And in no time at all, the man who runs the company is leaning over the desk and asking if the kid has ever seen The Night of the Living Dead from 1967. Because it wasn't just a movie. See, it was the truth. But the government tried to cover it up, and he can prove it because they bottled up those zombies in airtight canisters, and they're down in the basement right now
1: movie makes no secret of its inspiration it it doesn't and these reviews don't really leave a lot of mystery i mean they're essentially just describing the plot line
0: right yeah they're not really reviews they're just statements
1: of facts about the movie yeah i think i have an idea night of the living dead i thought at first and then i was like hmm well under that last review it definitely sounds like return of the living dead right 1985 yeah I think that's right what do you think this movie john I think that this is a near perfect comedic yet horrific movie that through music and mostly solid acting uh
0: is a symphony of enjoyment yeah the movie the music was uh, incredible the uh opening song uh, really sets the tone it's a it's, uh, discordant and jarring and has a has a has a marching feel to it as well, sort of punk rock marching dissonance.
1: Yeah, and it kind of reflects the pacing of the movie. The movie is very, from the first part till the end, it has kind of a torrent of experience where even yeah. the dialogue feels pressured in a way that just keeps moving, and either you're in it and you're paying attention to it, or it's moving past you.
0: Yeah, I was uh, immediately taken in by Frank, the actor who played Frank, the the sort of a uh, mid-level boss at the company he was charmingly over the top in all of his delivery and facial expressions and when he's telling frank all about the the background behind the canisters it's quite a treat to watch yeah i, I, I was sad that he so quickly was exposed and kind of muted as a character after 20 minutes
1: he was almost rubbery in his kind of like uh, exaggerated <laughs> both expressions with his his lines but also the way he carried himself he was fun Freddie was uh, an at-risk youth, one of
0: many at-risk youths in this movie, but he was trying to turn a page, I guess, by starting this new job at the, at the medical devices supply. How would you describe where he works? It's a cadaver supply company.
1: Yeah, it's, it had many items to supply to hospitals, probably more along the line of university medical programs. That would be my guess. That's the the profession that they're in is uh, supplying med because they had like beakers and other odd things, but it they, they felt more of items that one would use when training medically more than to like a hospital. Yeah, there's one scene at the beginning where they're packing up a
0: skeleton from India, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sort of a hodgepodge of items related to studying medicine. Yeah, half dogs one can find there as well. Dogs cut in half mm-hmm. for surgery or uh, not surgery
1: but dissection presumably the assuming a demonstration of what the internals look like for maybe a veterinarian program yeah in the commentary they mentioned something about those skeletons which is kind of a throwaway but evidently you could get skeletons and all of them came from india and then all of a sudden they stopped selling them internationally probably domestically too you're talking about real life real life uh, so if you happen to be in the 80s and looking to buy uh, a skeleton of a human india is where you get it from now i guess they just aren't
0: sold did uh the commentary say why india was an exporter of
1: human skeletons they made it seem almost as if they were killing people for the skeletons because the skeletons more valuable than the actual human so suggesting a sort of
0: harvesting process yeah of all the people I know John I feel like you're the one with the most background in zombie films. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the internal not self-referencing cuz these movies were made by different directors I believe but the explicit mentioning of sort of the connecting the plot to the to the Night of the Living Dead movie from uh, from from 20 years or so earlier 18 years or so earlier. I like that. Like is that is that legal or is that coordinated by by the directors
1: or what? The Night of the Living Dead franchise couldn't use the term living dead in their titles because I guess this guy Russo who wrote Night of the Living Dead or was part and parcel of creating it, that they owned that phrase or those that line, the uh, living dead. And so that's where it kind of branched off. So there is a root in Night of the Living Dead and then Night of the Living Dead went to Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. And then Living Dead kind of made its own branch. So it does have an origin point in Night. But, uh, and so referencing it, in a sense, it is a sequel. Because there's a a line of creative members moving into the Living Dead series. Hmm. But I liked it because it just made it seem, well, first the reference is nice. But then it also kind of plays within, at the time, was not a significant pool of zombie meta. Within this movie, it was... the the dead could run, which was a new concept. The dead wouldn't die when shot in the head. So they're essentially, you know, never ceasing. So there's a little two different avenues. And even during the production, I think there was discussion as to maybe we shouldn't make them run, but it sort of plays into the pacing of the movie. It's kind of a constantly moving. And so maybe if the zombies weren't running, it would slow the movie down in its pacing. So it could have been a, a deliberate choice just to, keep that energy in
0: the movie yeah and another big change in these zombies is that they're semi-intelligent they can speak mm. and uh they can you know, self-organize they set up ambushes for the police and paramedics who arrive on the scene they hide and then coordinate their attacks they use the radios to summon more police and more paramedics uh for further brain eating so they're they're uh,
1: vocal and uh intelligent and uh, self-organized. Yeah, a shift from Nine to the Living Dead. And, you know, what we haven't done is a short summary. You're right. It all starts with Freddy and Frank. Mm-hmm.
0: Frank is showing Freddy the ropes of the, the factory floor and how to pack up skeletons and where he can find the half dogs. And, uh, and, and then later on, Frank tells Freddy, or Freddy asks him, like, what's the weirdest thing you've ever mm-hmm. seen here? And that's when Frank divulges the information that in the basement is uh, a couple of crates filled with zombies that were mistakenly delivered by the US military when they should have gone somewhere else. And uh, inside are, I guess, like weaponized. The, the plan by the military was to freeze and, and store and, and later deploy these zombies on the battlefield, one assumes. But the canisters contain a, a gas which is released by accident by Franken. Freddy and uh, one of the one of the creatures escapes from the canister and um, the stuff in the canister, the gas seeps up and animates one of the cadavers, medical cadavers, which then comes alive and tries to kill Frank and Freddy. And then eventually they subdue the uh, medical cadaver and uh, take it over to be cremated by their friend Ernie, who runs a mortuary in the, in the cemetery next door. Ernie is reluctant to do this at first, but eventually he signs on, and um, all the ashes and uh, contaminants from the corpse proceed to rain down on the nearby graveyard, which animates hundreds of other dead. And uh, in the graveyard happen to be a group of very edgy teenagers, punk rock characters, Misfits, and they're just there to party and hang out on a on a Saturday night, and uh, they are the victims, the initial victims of these living dead. Yeah, it kind of goes from there. The uh, the paramedics come and and get eaten, and uh, Frank and Freddie and all the others and Bert and Ernie and all the punks try to defend themselves in inside of the mortuary and. The other places and uh, the zombies try to get them. Meanwhile, poor Freddy and and Frank are uh, suffering from the initial exposure to the gas, becoming zombies themselves, and that's not good. Yeah, Eventually, the military gets called, and they kind of blow up the whole place and problem solved.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that would be the end of it. Frank and Freddy get contaminated, as you said, in your plot summary, which is fantastic, and the paramedics came to try and revive them, and in that, they discover that both Frank and Freddy are without pulse, without Mm -hmm. body temperature, essentially corpses walking around, and through their change, immense amount of pain as rigor mortis sets in and and then switch over to uh, living dead. So that that, that had a nice, well, I wouldn't say nice, but it had a development to it that kind of spoke to the, what it looks like to come from living to living dead.
0: Yeah, the living dead... In most zombie movies, I feel like they're, they're just the consequence of being captured and, and bitten by them is that you yourself become a zombie. But, and, and that happens in this movie, too. That the, the ones that are bitten become zombies, but they have a particular lust for brain matter, um, which is a big focus. The brain matter relieves uh, consumption of it, relieves the pains of uh, rotting. Rotting is uh, something that, that these corpses feel and uh, the consumption of brains is a, uh, helps that pain to diminish. And there's that whole scene where they uh, Frank and Freddie and, and the other punks and so on sort of capture a uh, torso. This lady, this old lady who is just a torso. She's very gory looking, but she, she talks with them and explains, after being tied down, uh, talks with them about what she, why she wants the brains, and thus one learns um a little bit of sympathy for the zombies, I would say. Mm-hmm. A little bit of you get their motivation, you know they're not just out for they're out for pain relief the little half corpse interrogation, which I thought was very um well done in terms of just the the color of her eyes and her pupils and the the squirminess of her and the and the way she kind of lurched up with her head all the time trying to see if she could grab one of them um that, that was all really well done.
1: you can't negotiate out of pain in a in a way it's you, you might feel sad and you might feel anxious and you can kind of give a rationale and rethink a position and kind of change your mood or experience around that but with pain it's what do you to do about pain that it never ceases there's nothing you can really change about that also
0: another sort of hidden gem character is the uh the canister zombie who spends most of the movie in the basement of the medical supply company but there's a couple interactions with him and Uh, Just the way he moves, like his his crazy whole body shuffle, like a a chimpanzee or something. Um, That was was awesome. And (laughs) he was different than the other living dead. I guess maybe he had stronger body tone or whatever because he was created by the military or something, but, or maybe he was a a more recent corpse, but uh, he um, was intelligent as well in that he wired up the contraption to get, get the door open with the, a hoist system and all sorts of, uh, but just yet yeah, he was a uh, spooky and also hilarious and uh, just a cool looking character all around.
1: Oh, so a piece of information is that the guy that wrote this also wrote alien. It appears that this is sort of a diamond in the rough, sort of like held together by uh, rubber bands and developed in someone's basement. And probably to a degree that's true, but you did have kind of a heavyweight as the guy that wrote alien who also wrote this but there's maybe at some level of coincidence because the genre wasn't necessarily filled out as it is now a series of choices that were made that really worked well for the production so like as you were saying the zombie that came out of the the container the group of punk rock kids the music the the seemingly unknown actors as far as i'm aware who played their parts quite well, and um, this sort of like never-ending pace, like these components all kind of came together and worked well, and it almost feels coincidental or accidental, but maybe there's more awareness to the movie than we give credit to.
0: Yeah, um, I agree. It's uh, something about it. There's there's a lot of uh, care taken in its in its creation, but um, it's also very. Cringe, cringeworthy and uh, the punks in particular and their lines and their attitudes towards life and so on are just so over the top that uh, you kind of want to stop watching it. But at the same time, it's a, it's like a car crash. You can't look away from it. I don't know how to describe it. (laughs) And the, the, the young lady, Tina, Freddie's love interest seemed a complete mismatch for the people she was associated with. She seemed like sort of a goody two shoes, kind of a little nerd. But she hung out with these very rough-edged, at-risk teenagers, one of whom strips completely naked and uh, does a little strip dance on a tombstone for no apparent reason. <laughs> and, and I feel like the movie was, was very very solicitous to continue to show her breasts through all the later scenes. Like when she's
1: in the backseat of the car, she has her hands up the whole time so, so we can google at her large boobs within the commentary they mentioned that as well that that was a deliberate and in, back into the idea that this wasn't necessarily an accidental constellation <laughs> of events is that they determined or guessed that most people that would be watching this would be men and so she was inserted as what would they want to see like you know someone who would be entertained by that as a feature as opposed to an actual plot device <laughs> yeah but uh yeah overall a pretty uh, enjoyable experience
0: yeah, I don't. I don't know uh, what else to say about this movie. I was. I was. Uh, you know, can't say I was pleasantly surprised, but um, you know, it has its charms. Uh, as I, as I, uh, as I said, I thought at the, of the time it's a gem, hmm. and uh, maybe it's not a gem I ever want to see again. But it's uh, it's uh, it's, it's got a little luster to it.
1: I have uh, a little point of discussion. If you're interested, Brian. Oh, I'm interested. Hit me. I was thinking about the movie and some of its themes, and obviously one of them is death. Mm -hmm. Part of the maybe not most apparent struggle is the dead interacting with the living and that back and forth and a bit of a struggle there. And what came to mind was the idea of death anxiety. Are you familiar? Yeah, I've heard the term you know, and thinking about how significant it is for one to consider their own death. And throughout this movie, everyone is including the dead. So even when you're dead, you're still concerned about living, or at least it's animating you. And so death anxiety, what are your thoughts?
0: I mean, I think it's natural to uh, fear one's own death. I, uh, think about it sometimes of my own death, but, uh, I wouldn't say it's a constant worry. I I stay very busy with my work and my projects and and my hikes um, Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason for that is to drown out any time I might have to step back and contemplate my own mortality. So I feel like I've got some robust
1: defense mechanisms and distractions. Yeah, and I can give you two of the biggest ones. Okay. First one, personal specialness. This is a concept Mm -hmm. where... People may be near death or hear about people dying, yet they couldn't consider themselves fitting that role. So death is something that happens to others, but doesn't happen to me. And they don't believe, although suspending logic, that death will come to them. And so maybe pushing it out is a, is a way as as work might be a, a good avenue because it engrosses you, it produces something, it continues this achievement model, and Who can achieve? Well, one that's alive can achieve, but if you're not alive, then there's nothing to achieve in a sense. So personal specialness, um, the second one being ultimate rescuer. So that would fit into the idea of a God in a sense, or um, even sister to that, a doctor where people at times really put the weight into the physician that they're working with. They have this level of respect, which could be a Different power dynamic, but also could fit within the idea of, well, this person tells me something, I'll accept it, and when I'm most sick, he's the person that's most important to me. And if they tell me, or him, or she, the doctor tells me that there's no hope for me, or that my death isn't within three months or so, the first thought is that anger towards the doctor, the one delivering that message, as to, Mm. isn't this the person that's supposed to save me? Uh, So. Personal specialness, ultimate rescuer, two of the big ones. These are um, mechanisms
0: by which we, what, avoid thinking about death, avoid blaming ourselves for our own death?
1: If you want to think of it within like a pathology type uh, framework. So pathological struggle along the lines of inability to cope with death anxiety uh, would create anxiety. And so that would be the problem the solution would be achieving symbolic immortality in a sense so creating something or living through something or dedicating yourself to something that moves beyond your your death and according to
0: the uh the literature this this immortality project
1: effort is that considered healthy like a healthy response to death anxiety the way that they would look at it is as long as it reduces the anxiety that death brings to you, but doesn't remove you from the experience of life itself, then it is a effective and efficient coping mechanism. If it comes to the point at which you're so engrossed in your work that nothing else is being accomplished in your life and that's your sole focus, then that would be a problem. And it would be kind of thinking of those that don't live their life fully because they are avoiding the payment of death, that would be ineffective. So maybe something along the lines of maintaining or holding two very youthful ideas and then not developing as an individual, not achieving their goals because of the anxiety that death brings, maybe not taking risk, uh, which would be sister to death. One could even get a little more abstract and say something along the lines of, I wouldn't further myself in my career because success is me risking myself to the the hand of uh, failure, which could be interpreted as near to my own loss of life, but maybe my loss of professional stature, something along those lines. So
0: you, one doesn't take risks in life because those risks might destroy the immortality project and therefore confront one with the paralysis of having to reconcile oneself to death.
1: Yeah. If I, if I'm, if I'm potential and moving towards something, then that is at least gives me the, the glimmer of hope. If I engage and am and I become successful, I'm differentiated away from my population group and I'm by myself in a sense, Isolation in a way. And then, if that's taken from me, well, then there's the death of success, which would be short lived. So, a safer place would be to not achieve or attempt to achieve. And uh, that would be what would be described as an ineffective, or it would be effective because it reduced your anxiety, but it would prevent you from making the fullest of the uh, loan of life. And the thing that's holding you back is the. Payment of death. So one can
0: either deal with death anxiety by taking on a immortality project with which prevents you from living life fully, or you can just sit on a yoga mat and not undertake any more immortality project and still feel death anxiety.
1: Well, there's this acceptance idea which could be kind of in between where you're in a mindfulness state of acceptance and living in the moment but a small problem with that is paralysis where i'm not getting anything done despite and and thinking of maybe living in the moment or living for the day maybe and enjoying that experience but not creating anything more sophisticated from it yeah i know the uh the ancient stoics had
0: a uh, a practice where you were meant to sit down and sort of premeditate, think about in advance all the bad things that could happen to you or that would happen to you, statistically speaking, your illness or your loss of loved ones or your own death and um, consider them as real possibilities and sort of feel feel them, anticipate how you would feel in them, and, and that that practice was meant to provide some kind of solace. Hmm. I don't know if there's a modern um, clinical version of that practice or not?
1: There could be the idea of, and there is, imagining your death and using that as a motivator to achieve things knowing that your time supply is limited. The death piece is unavoidable, uh, so full acceptance of that or even the motivation of that may get you to do things that you wouldn't have otherwise done. And the other thing that I thought about is when you're a child and the introduction of death is brought to you, so maybe loss of pet, loss of aunt or something like that, and how significantly that could change your psyche or change your, or at least have a, one could describe quite a intellectually tragic event and i think that you know in in parenting and i've never parented but from a from an outsider there is this anxiety around the topic of sex with children and Mm -hmm. i think that is really an anxiety that's couched more in the parent than the child the child doesn't care in fact the child doesn't even quite understand it normally when those topics are introduced and they see it as okay well when that comes i'll I'll figure it out, but the topic of death isn't necessarily highlighted in the same way when that feels like a topic that would require much more grace and much more sophistication and approach because that, as inherited to a child or would be catastrophic to how they view their world, and uh some might even say part of the appeal of nostalgia is the time in which death didn't provide such a negative view or pressuring experience. And so going back into a time period in which the presence of death wasn't as significant brings the idea of nostalgia in a sense. So yeah, as a child, I don't know if you can remember a time in which it was first introduced to you. I don't necessarily, but I'd imagine that at the time it was quite catastrophic to my future thinking or at least my view of of myself. So you're saying that parents don't speak openly
0: with their children about sex and they also don't or they they should speak more openly
1: about death with their kids? Both both require more instruction, more coaching. It's a underdeveloped area of focus when it comes to a parent. Part of it could be the fact that the parent doesn't really know how to Cope with it themselves and they're struggling with it. You're talking about death? Yeah, sorry, death. And the product of a child could be seen as the exact solution to death anxiety, the symbolic immortality of yourself passing a string of your DNA to someone. I doubt it's thought of as that scientific, but the child would carry on and I'll instill it things of me and then that vessel will continue after my death. And so then to talk to that product that you've created in a maybe subconscious way of dealing with death anxiety about death, it's like the parent would probably want to avoid that topic. And so like that, avoiding a topic for a child, when the child, you know, thinking of development, you probably hear about it when you're eight, maybe, maybe even younger than that. And your world is flowers and future and toys and such. And then this really heavy weight of You will die at some point in your life is laid at their feet where they have probably very few mechanisms to cope with such a consideration and the mother or father are more worried about, well, how do we bring up sex? And the kid's just like, well, I don't care about that. So I guess my point is that that's probably a topic area that would require more grace and maybe massaging for the child than I think parents realize.
0: I think that society does a pretty good job as well of um, helping us to deny our own our own mortality. We obsess over youth and beauty and health, and um, we kind of don't put old, broken down folks on our screens and in our movies and uh, in front of our awareness. And uh, everybody's, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a you know buy more and save more and earn more and, and plan more and do more. And there's a, there's a societal, um, conveyor belt that you can get on that, uh, helps you greatly to not think about death. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know about raising kids either, but, uh, I think that, uh, religion also would play a role there. You, you, you'd, especially if they were very young, you, you would, I would feel the desire to give them some simple comfort, which, uh, a belief in an afterlife or something could provide. So I think that that's another mechanism that parents might lean on.
1: Yeah, it's a simple out. Something to consider when battling the living dead is that they're maybe battling the same experience. (laughs) I can't can't say that
0: this movie provoked in me the same depth of uh, reflection. I thought that everybody just wanted to party in the graveyard and uh, eat some brains, but um, I see what you mean. And uh, you know, I wish you all the best, John. With, uh, with uh... <laughs> yeah, I should start a parenting class on how to talk to your kids about death. Yeah, I think it'd be well attended. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what, to, to what extent kids are like curious about it either. I feel like I was very curious about it as a kid. I didn't go around tugging at my parents apron strings and asking them questions about it. But I certainly dwelled
1: on it a lot as a kid. Yeah. In, in my own private broodings. There you go. In isolation, you were tormented by this concept <laughs> of your self-destruction. And I think many children are. The thing that parents seem to be most concerned about, at least in a comical way, let's not bring up sex just yet. He's not, or she's not mature enough. And it's like, okay, well, when you bring that up, the kid doesn't even care about it. I think the thing with sex
0: is like you, you want to prevent bad decision making and and all the awful consequences that can come from bad decisions around sex, so I mean you have to wait to a certain age where there's a physical development but also kind of a, a level of interest where you can have that conversation um same thing about like drugs you know and alcohol you wanna it's it's preventative i think the 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 discussion about death yeah it's maybe happens earlier or should happen earlier but it's it's a different kind of discussion it's not preventative it's a it's about comforting and um, providing a framework, whereas sex and drugs and alcohol is on a different side of the parenting equation.
1: In the idea of the church, where the idea of death is carried away by the uh, uh, ultimate rescuer kind of motif around a god, and then that's thought of as solved in a sense, and then uh, the sin is in sex and drugs. Uh, And the focus lies significantly within that as it relates to a child's development and and even as an adult. But yeah, I see your point in that it's um, kind of creating walls of safety around those topics. But how much of that is a perceived risk and an actual risk? Actual risk meaning child is brooding and tormented by this concept of death and feeling in isolation while the parents think that they've done their duty by saying don't do drugs and then that's it yeah well i mean at some age
0: one gets wrapped up in society's collective attitudes about death and denial and consumerism and and busyness and all that and and problem is not solved but problem is As solved as it is for anyone, so I think to some extent the parent relies on society to to wrap up the child in its uh, attitudes around death and death denial. There's so much future in the minds of young people. I think Uh, after a certain age, you know, it's once once you become a teenager, you think about independence and discovering yourself, and eventually leaving school and leaving the home and it's just death doesn't fit there's too. it's crowded out by all this other potentials and all these other hopes and dreams and ideas and possibilities that it's almost even unthinkable it's just not it's not the time i think it's an age that's earlier like you said where you first discover death to an extent and and contemplate your own death but then that quickly gets overwhelmed by all of the futuring that is appropriate for that period of life that uh I think it's just, there's no room for that thought for a time, maybe
1: until you're in your late twenties or thirties. Right. And interesting thing, there's the individuation where, uh, another concept that relates to death anxiety would be, I don't want to come out from the umbrella of my parents or become my own person because the idea that I do that opens me up to risk and I will then just Mesh myself or stay within the safety of my parent and not become my own person. Because if I stay within the umbrella of my parent, well then there's no risk of, of death because I'm protected in this cave. You can see like maybe at the post adolescent period where you're really, or even adolescents where you're trying to become your own individual that one might restrict themselves Uh, And stay safe within the parental model. And maybe based on the motivation of not feeling the anxiety of death.
0: Yeah, I think there's even if even if you're not moving back in with your parents or having an over uh, inappropriately close dependence on them in, in that sense, failing to individuate, even if you're being relatively independent, but following in their footsteps in a broader sense, like a lot of young people. Take on the jobs of their parents or or the relationship structures of their parents or the political beliefs of their parents, I guess I don't know, but just the general attitudes there's a a sequence uh, there that might be a subconscious that the subconscious patterning of one's behavior and beliefs could mirror some kind of well that they made it through, and they're still alive and they're relatively relatively successful, so if I believe and do the same things, I'll get there too, and therefore avoid avoid death,
1: yeah, follow the cut path. And that would be the one that would provide me the most fruit in a sense.
0: Well yeah. uh that graveyard really churned up some some deep topics.
1: Yeah, I had a little shiver down my spine as
0: I walked past. It's a good thing I didn't tell you about that uh little fog I saw floating
1: around the Oh Jesus. The the tombstones. So let's try and camp at least fifty yards from this. <laughs> yeah, that should be fine.
0: I think once we hear the synthesizers and the 80s techno, we'll be all right. We'll just get up and pack up and hike a little further on. Yeah, movie's a gem.
1: Uh, can't recommend it, but at the same time, I guess I recommend it. Yeah, I think that uh, if you're within the genre and it's something you enjoy, it's almost a requirement to watch it. Yeah, I'd say you have to watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that or or die. That's essentially yeah. your <laughs> options.
0: <laughs> watch this movie or Experience death, anxiety, and actual death. (laughs) All right, sir. All right. uh, Until our next uh, movie talk. That's right. Let's hit the trail.